0: evening. Those of you that are in the lobby, come on in. We're going to get started here this evening. I want to welcome you to Christ Presbyterian Church. For those of you that might be visiting with us tonight, my name is Dave Osborne. I'm a pastor here at the church, and I am very, very glad that you are with us tonight. Um, In just a few moments, I'm going to introduce Rosarian. I'm going to pray. But before I do that, um, I want to cover some housekeeping things that we need to no, together. Um, one is I, I want to I thank um, God for the nursery workers that we have tonight. I uh, often forget to thank them and I actually forgot to get nursery going until last week and so they have been under the gun largely because of me and, I, and my forgetfulness and so I want to thank God for their Willingness to serve and help in that capacity so that uh, we could be here and our children could also be cared for So we want to thank Jen and everybody else. Barb, that's, that's back there helping out. It's a great help As well as all those who are running tech um, To record and run the mics and everything is, um, is a really big help And it, it will not only uh, enable you all to hear stuff But also we're going to record and it will be available for others who weren't able to come tonight And so we're very thankful for those guys and their volunteering also, I uh, want to let you know, if you're new to our church, that, that where the bathrooms are. So you can go out either door here. We have the, the ladies' bathroom on this side and the men's on this side. So feel free to use the bathrooms as you need and just know that's where they are. Uh, in the lobby, you might have noticed that there are lots of books on the table out there. Uh, we, as, a, as elders and as a church, we're more concerned about you having the material and having the books than getting money than us getting money so there's a suggested donation out there Um, if you don't have the money if you don't have the money tonight please take the books we want you to have them if if you feel so compelled to send us a check in the near future that's fine but we really want you to have the material and if you want to take more than one book and you don't have any money take more than one book whatever you think would be useful um, getting the word out is really important and, and really helpful, and being equipped is very, very, very profitable. So please take those books as you can and as you want to and as you need to. Um, also, tonight I want to tell you about the format. Um, Rosaria is going to come up in a few minutes and give a first lecture where she's going to talk about her conversion and talk about her story and what God has done in her life. And then we're going to move from that into a Q&A time. And depending on how that Q&A goes we might have a second lecture. Or, since we're going to have Rosaria come back later this year or the beginning of 2015, we might save that second one till then. We'll see. But she is ready. <laughs> and so we can get a lot of information tonight, and I'm very thankful for that. I didn't even know that there was a second lecture possible, but I found that out, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, as you guys know, this is a very popular topic of discussion. And it's something that, uh, that we need to take seriously. It's a very important topic. And it's something that it's important for us as a church to be involved in. We need to talk about these things. And we need to have these types of conversations in the church. It's really important. Um, we need to be a people that are willing to grow in our comfort level in talking about these things with people and it's not good if we are just perceived as shouting out pronouncements. We really need to increase our comfort level and our ability to have these conversations with people in the context of a relationship. It's very important, and so Rosaria hopefully will be here to help us with that and and to hear what God has done in her life. So, I want to introduce to you to Rosaria Butterfield. She is our guest tonight, and we're very thankful that she's here. Um, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse University for a number of years. Uh, she lives not too far from us. She lives in Durham, North Carolina, and so she just has to go about two hours, and so we're very thankful that she's here. Um, her husband is also with her tonight. His name is Kent, and they have four adopted children, and so Rosaria is a A full-time pastor's wife yes her husband is a pastor she is a full-time mom and she writes a little bit and is doing probably more speaking than she planned on at least when things got started and so we're very thankful to have her here but if you really wanna know who Rosaria is she really is a sinner who's saved by grace all those other things are just what God has her do But who she really is is a sinner saved by grace, and I think she would tell you that's who she really is if you want to know who Rosaria Butterfield is. So we're very glad that she's here. She wrote a book that's available in the lobby, came out in 2012, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and we're just very thankful that you're here, Rosaria. So can I pray for us? Is that okay? If you'd like to, let's bow our heads together and we'll pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you that we are able to have this conversation and that we are able to think together tonight. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that there is no one who is more gentle than you. There's no one who is as kind as you are. There's no one who is as kind to broken people as you are. There's no one who is as understanding of the struggles that people have as you. Lord Jesus, you are indeed gentle and yet you are constant. You are gentle and you are firm. You are gentle and yet you are all powerful. Would you help us to see by the work of your Spirit your work tonight and would you make us more like you? We pray in your name. Amen. Rosaria. Please welcome Rosaria Butterfield.
1: you. Can you hear me? Yep. Thank you. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christianity without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? Truth be told, it felt a little of both. The language normally used to describe this odd miracle does not work for me. I did not read one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes and uh, carefully examine my life against the tenets of the Bible the way one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others and logically and cleanly make a decision for Christ. While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. Neither did I feel like the victim of some emotional earthquake and collapse gracefully into the arms of my savior, like some holy and sanctified Scarlett O'Hara having been claimed by Christ's irresistible grace. Heretical as it might seem, Christ and Christianity seemed eminently resistible. My Christian life unfolded as I was just living my, my life, my normal life and in the normal course of life, questions emerged that exceeded my secular feminist worldview. Those questions sat quietly in the crevices of my mind until I met a most unlikely friend, a Christian pastor. Had a pastor named Ken Smith not shared the gospel with me for years and years, over and over again, not in some used car salesman way, but in an organic, spontaneous, and compassionate way, those questions might still be lodged in the crevices of my mind, and I might have never met the most unlikely of friends, Jesus Christ himself. I had a normal childhood. That always comes up, so I thought I should just say that right off the bat. (laughs) Whatever that means. I was raised in the Catholic faith. I'm named after the rosary. Uh, and I attended predominantly liberal Catholic schools. And my liberal Catholic all-girl high school discipled me in the life skills that I still use today. I learned there to read deeply and well. I learned there to diagram a sentence before I claimed to understand it. And I learned there to look out for the unloved and draw them in. I also had a heterosexual adolescence. In college, I met my first boyfriend, and it was a heady experience. But at the same time, an undercurrent of longing inserted itself into my intense friendships with women. And I didn't make much of this at first. From the age of 22 until 28, I continued to date men, and at the same time, feel a sense of longing and connection that simply toppled over the edges for some of my women friends. This repetitious sensibility rooted and grew, and I decided that I simply preferred the company of women. And in my late 20s, enhanced by feminist philosophy, and at that point, LGBT political activism, my homosocial preference morphed into homosexuality. The shift was subtle, not startling. My lesbian identity, and my love for my LGBT community developed in sync with my lesbian sexual practice. And life finally came together for me and made sense. I studied Freud. I cheered that the DSM had long since removed homosexuality from its list of disorders, thus rendering homosexuality in the eyes of the world and the academy normal. With no prohibitions or constraints, By the time I had graduated from Ohio State with my Ph.D. in English Literature and Critical Theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. We moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department at Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed normal, and I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbianism for me seemed like a cleaner, and a more moral sexual practice, always preferring symmetry to asymmetry. I believed I had found my real self. So what happened to my Catholic training? Well, I believed now that it was anti-intellectual and superstitious. And the name Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayers and then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil in anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I cared a lot about morality, justice, and compassion. As a 19th century scholar fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. And my life at this time was happy, meaningful, and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. It was hard to argue that she and I were anything but good citizens and good caregivers. Indeed, our big fat gay agenda involved really scary things like feeding the poor and housing the homeless, and teaching reading to the illiterate. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. And indeed, I honed the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my gay and lesbian community. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against people like me And to do this, I began reading the Bible while looking out for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. I am an English professor by training after all, so these things make me very excited. So you can get excited with me about this. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. But it also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah, absurd. At this time, the promise keepers came to town and they parked their little circus at the university. I was on a war against stupid at the time. And so I wrote an article. And I published it in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box. Remember the days of Xerox boxes? I kept two of them, one on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter that I received defied my filing system. It was from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken didn't argue with my article, rather. He asked me to defend the presuppositions. We have friends coming in. (laughs) The presuppositions that undergirded it. And in his letter, he shared his love for the Bible, his concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of a literature curriculum, and he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. And I simply thought that was insane, all of it. I believed that people proceed from history and are shaped for good or for ill by the culture that molds them. And I did not know how to respond to this letter, so I threw it away. And later that night, I fished it out of the department's recycling bin and I put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week confronting me with a worldview divide that simply demanded a response. You see, as a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural one. And if I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track, and how this man, Jesus, persuaded so many people to follow him, Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. Well, at this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was reserved merely for Stephen King novels. So with the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me at Gay Pride Day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock, it engaged. And so when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted because my motives at the time were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floy, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. And when we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I simply had never heard before. His prayers were intimate vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And at my first meal in their home, Ken and Floy omitted two very important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with a heathen like me. Number one, they did not share the gospel with me. And number two, they did not invite me to church. And because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, as I had come to know it, I felt that when Ken extended his hand to me in friendship, it was safe to close mine in his. I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly, reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. I read the way a glutton devours. Slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and a meaning that startled me. And some of my well-worn paradigms just no longer stuck. And I had to at least ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different from all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and somehow inherently true and inherently trustworthy. And this led me to go through the presuppositional truth claims just to check the math of the meaning here. And the logic claims go like this. Number one, if this was a book written by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, then its admonitions about sin were not what I had always thought sin was. My definition of sin was that it was applied cultural phobia. And um, that's really what I thought it was. But if God is good, and if his goodness is unrestrained by time, then his goodness would anticipate and guard against the ill-treatment of a people group, the scapegoating of a people group. And I noticed as I read the Bible that its admonitions about sin were offered by offers of grace. And that really struck me as odd. You mean the God of the Bible deals differently with people when people deal differently with him? And number two... If God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and my culture and not the other way around. You see, even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority can only depend upon that which is higher than itself. So, who is higher than God? I wondered. My friends knew I was reading the Bible, and they weren't pleased. First, the dean of the chapel took me out to lunch and shared his belief that the Old Testament was completely dispensable and with it, any prohibition about sexuality and immorality. But I had been reading and studying the three different narratives of the Old Testament and it it seemed to me that you really couldn't dispense with the entire Old Testament without violating a primary rule about canonicity. And in fact, just that week, I was teaching a course in feminist hermeneutics and my class was discussing this primary rule about canonicity. You cannot create a canon within a canon. If it's a canon, then it's set. And and I have to say, I was sort of wondering maybe if this guy should sit in on my feminist theory class and (laughs) we can kind of work this out a little bit. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, The chapel dean's position seemed like a hermeneutic of convenience. I saw my students doing this all the time, and you got nailed. doesn't work. Fitting the text to fit my experience, and not a hermeneutic of integrity. When we're dealing with the Bible, the hermeneutic of integrity is really different than all the other books, but it goes like this. The Bible claims that it's a text that will transform the very nature of humanity. That's its internal integrity. Well, if that's its claim, we've got to go with that, see if it really pans out. Next, and this was probably the harder one, at a dinner gathering that my partner and I were hosting, My transgendered friend, Jay, cornered me in the kitchen and she put her large hand over mine and she said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you. I felt exposed. She was right. She always was. But what if it's true, I asked. What if Jesus is real and risen? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. She sat down in the chair across from mine and her eyes looked wise. And she said, Rosaria, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I'll pray for you. Well, this encounter gave me a kind of secret, tacit permission to keep reading the Bible. My dear friend, one of my closest friends, had also read it cover to cover many times, and had rooted around in its deep crevices for life purpose and help. I had not known that until that encounter in the kitchen. But the bomb she dropped also enraged me. Who is this Jesus who heals some but not others? No peace and social justice activist wants some unequal opportunity God. The next day, when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates spilling over with theological books, Jay's books. She was giving them to me. In Kelvin's institutes and in the margins in the exposition of the book of Romans in Jay's handwriting was a warning. Watch Romans 1. This is what Romans 1 says, 1, through 27. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Well, I found the verb clauses to be particularly arresting here. Did not honor God, did not give thanks, engaged in futile speculations, became fools, exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible, God gives some of us over to our lusts, and when we look at the world through our lusts, we dishonor our bodies and we worship the world. This verse seemed to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. If I were Eve, I would have done the same thing. And at the same time, this... This seemingly innocent sin attributed to Adam, importantly, because of his headship, served as the leverage for the whole world to come tumbling down, fierce and fast, bloody and brilliant. You know, at this point, I was reading the Bible up to five hours a day, uh, and I'm a pretty fast reader, so I was covering a lot. A lot happens when you read through the Old Testament with a kind of intensity and a commitment to get through the whole story i think when we read it a verse a day it doesn't quite make the same sense but as soon as sin entered the world it became a bloodbath Uh, you know i mean if it were a movie it would be you know you couldn't get up and get popcorn it'd be over Uh, and we you know if we read a verse a day we completely miss that but it it is just it, it it is fierce and fast and bloody and brilliant the effect of original sin So these two verses, one in Genesis and one in Romans, stood out as bookends of my life, but not just my life, that's the rub. If the Bible is true as an eternal frame, then Genesis 3 and Romans 1 stood out as the table of contents of what truly ails the world. Indeed, Romans 1 does not end by highlighting homosexuality as the worst and most extreme example of the sin of failing to give God the glory for creating us. <clears throat> Here is where this passage finds its crescendo. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You know, this last line, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This last line grabbed me by the throat. It told me that if we cannot receive a blessing from God, we will demand acceptance from the world as the faculty advisor to many LGBT student groups on campus. This really cut me to the core. But I also took note of the theological diagnosis. Homosexuality in the Bible is not the end point of the problem. Not for God and not for the world. Homosexuality, according to God, is not the unpardonable sin. Nor is it the worst of all sins, at least not to God but it is presented here as one step in the journey. Homosexuality then, according to God, is consequential, not causal. Homosexuality, from God's point of view, is an identity-rooted ethical outworking of this. Failing to see, to rigorously relinquish my identity to God's story and failing to understand that the fall rendered even my deepest, most primal feelings, untrustworthy and untrue. Now, I had taught, studied, read, and lived a very different notion of homosexuality. And for the first time in my life, I wondered if I was wrong. And this stopped me in my tracks. You see, somehow it was easier to hate the Bible when it squared off against me. It could just be a foe, something I argued with, something I read five hours a day, but something I sparred with, like a good tennis partner. But now that it was getting under my skin, it became a foe of a different and more menacing kind. And so I did the only logical thing. I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings in the trash because it had gotten to be too much. A little bit like a bad relationship, I wanted to cut the cord. But Ken Smith was my friend. He was my neighbor. He was in my life. He encouraged me to keep reading, and only because I trusted him did I do so. As I read and reread the Bible, I kept catching my wings in its daily embrace. I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that is, that its meaning and purpose has a holy and supernatural authority that has protected it over the years of its canonicity, and that it is the repository of truth. How could a smart cookie like me believe such things? I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believed that the reader constructed the text, that a text's meaning found its purpose and its power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without the reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How could this one book lay claim to a birthright, and a progeny, totally different than all the others. Well, that this book was supernatural was becoming more and more evident to me and my hermeneutical bag of tricks simply had no system of containment for it. As I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the word made flesh and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of someone's imagination the whole Bible, even the places that took me captive. And after years and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world, and I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken and Floyd, and two years after I started reading the Bible supposedly for my research, I left the bed that I shared with my lesbian partner, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I say this not to be lurid, but to remind us that we never know the treacherous path that some people take to arrive in the pew that we share, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Conspicuous of my appearance, I reminded myself that I came there to meet God, not to fit in. The first sermon that I ever heard was intended for children. It was the children's sermon. Whoo, I thought this is just my speed. Ken started to talk about the narrow gate and the wide gate. Okay, I'd read the Bible a few times through at this point. I, I, I was tracking. But, but then he made some big deal about some silly prop that was in his pocket. And he lost me there. I never got the prop part. Actually, I didn't get much of the sermon. My mind kept wandering to last year's Gay Pride March, wide as it was with people just like me. And that made me wonder, why does my mind keep traveling to the wide path? I kept going back to the church to hear more sermons. I had made friendships with people in the church by this time, and I appreciated the way that they talked about the sermons throughout the week, how the word of God dwelt in them and how they referenced it in the details of their days. I must tell you that English professors, by training, love cross-referencing. It is truly one of the most exciting things when someone can give me a direct quotation of something and apply it with skill. Oh, it just makes me, it just makes me shiver. <laughs> but I have to tell you that I muddled over this in my mind. Cross-referencing the Bible with your life seems so crazy and dangerous. I just wanted to say, look, do you realize what you're doing? (laughs) This places you inside this book, inside God's story, inside God's ontology. Is this safe? Is this deadly? I pondered these matters. Ken was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew with its bewildering cast of characters and problems. Oh, so just do a character study through Matthew. Unsuspecting folks separated unto the gospel, seeds choked by the world, feeding thousands with some poor and nameless kids, bread and fish, and then Jesus is cutting questions to impetuous Peter. Do you still lack understanding? Well, one Lord's Day, Pastor Ken just stopped there. He turned his steel blue eyes on the congregation. He held us in this long pause before he turned the question on us. Congregation, he said, did Christ ever say this to you? Well, this startled me, you see, because this was my question. This question truly was for me. Do I still lack understanding? And for a chilling moment, I wondered who was speaking. The man behind the pulpit, who was my neighbor and friend, who liked to garden and mow his lawn in those funny angles, or the God-man behind the foundation and the redemption of his people. There was something about the hermeneutic of preaching that disarmed me, and truth be told, it still does. And the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not primarily because we were gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. We rejected the Bible's interpretive authority over our sexuality, our sexual identity, and our sexual practice. It was our hearts and our minds first. I know our bodies and our identities followed, and I got it, and I heard it, finally. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math, because this was my crucible, and indeed this is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead, and if the Bible is not true, or it's semi-true, or it's sometimes true, then I am simply the biggest fool on earth. But God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. And one Lord's Day, Ken was preaching in John seven seventeen, if anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. You see, I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them and tell other people what to think. And I expected in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. You see, I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. Perhaps I thought like even in the garden. I, I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, no wonder I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking and the matching of wits. But could my heart echo God's call for obedience? That's what the Bible was asking. Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high because they always are. But the verse promised understanding after obedience, and I really wrestled with the question, did I want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? Well, I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. Starting with my own sexuality was too scary. It was too impossible. So I started with Jesus. I prayed that God would be pleased to reveal his son in me. I prayed that I would be a vessel of Jesus. And then I moved to gender. I don't know why, but I had a driving, somewhat oxymoronic, downright ironic satirical and hilarious desire, to truly make biblical sense of my place in the world as a woman, defined and covered by God. The idea of covenant and covering were both terrifying, terrifying and appealing to me. And I was just curious, what would it be like if God made me a godly woman? And so I prayed, that God would make me a godly woman. And then I laughed out loud in my unbelief and at the insanity of this prayer. So then I moved to sin. I prayed that God would give me the faith to repent of my sin at its root. What is the root of my sin, I wondered. I did not then and I do not now think that homosexuality was the root of my sin. According to the Bible, homosexuality is not a root sin but a fruit. It's a fruit of something else. We talked about it before with Romans 1. It is an ethical outworking of state of mind. That's what homosexuality is. According to Romans 1, ethical outworking of a state of mind first before it becomes a sexual practice. The Bible never calls it a genetic disposition, a hormonal difference, or a sexual orientation. It is not any of those things, not to God, So perhaps because I was an old Marxist at heart, the concept that ideas have a material force have simply always seemed quite on target for me. But how does one repent of a sin that doesn't feel like a sin at all, but rather a normal, not-bothering-another-soul kind of life? How would I come to this place? What is the root of the sin of my sexual identity? I was a jumble of emotions, but I prayed that night that the Lord would help me to see my life from his point of view. And the next morning when I woke up and I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. And I felt the same. But when I looked in the mirror of the Bible, I wondered, I just wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? I mean if Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Oh, let's be clear. I still felt like a lesbian in my body and my heart. That was, I felt my real identity. But what, I wondered, is my true identity. You see, the Bible makes clear that the real and the true have a very vexed relationship on this side of eternity for all of us. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, with dreams and hopes and plans dashed. The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling will always echo an attribute of God. And at least in my experience, obedience constrains. It mirrors suffering as every selection implies a sacrifice. So, what is bigger, I wondered my lesbian identity, or God's authority over me? That was the question. Who is this Jesus who is asking such big things of me? And of you. Did I know him? Do I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then when ordinary day I came to Jesus, There are no altar calls in a reformed Presbyterian church. So the guy whose pack of the head I stared at for years just had no idea. You know, went on without a glitch. We were singing from Psalm 119, line 56. This is mine, because, because forever all thy precepts I preserve. Now after I sang these words, I checked them in the Bible just to make sure the Psalter didn't have some wacky misprint in it. And the Bible used a helping verb and noted the verse like this. This has become mine. This has become mine. Well, something about that helping verb really made something shift in me. Two weight-bearing walls seemed to collapse at once. The first wall came crashing down because I had just sung condemnation unto myself and I was in tune enough with the Holy Spirit to feel that convicting rebuke. You see, the Bible was not mine. Oh, I had read it many times. But I had scorned it, and cursed it, and despised it, and declared to the whole watching world how much I hated it. All right? But I had been reading and rereading this book. I couldn't stop. And the use of that helping verb here has and has become really troubled me. You see, two years of laborious reading embodies the helping verb has. It showed process and journey, pilgrimage, and danger. But I was not in Christ, and therefore I could not possibly keep these precepts, God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. You know, here's the funny thing about the law. Before you're saved, it looks really easy. You're like, okay, come on, people, feed the poor. Once you're saved, you can't even measure up to, you know, two words in it. And so I noticed that for the first time. And here was the shattering for me of the second wall. I had read the Bible many times through. And in spite of all of my complaining and my despising and my stomping my feet, I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the words, this is mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing. I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture, and that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed into my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. You know, I sometimes get requests to write books these days, and uh, I especially get requests to write Bible study books or books on evangelism. And I just think it's sort of a funny thing, because really, God knows what you need to hear, right? We were not singing This Little Light of Mine. We were singing from Psalm 119. Right This little light of mine would not have done well. it might have done harm, no good. But you know, I still can't imagine, as committed as I am to reformed theology and um, to a reformed systematic, I still can't quite picture an evangelistic book on the use of helping verbs in the Psalter. I mean, if, if someone out there really thinks that's, the, that's where we need to go, I'll write that book. But, but I think there is something very, very sweet in the way that the Lord knows just what you need and the way that the Word of God is already established to meet you there. So my hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought that I was on the side of kindness, integrity, and care and it was a crushing revelation to discover it. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. Well, in this war of worldviews, Ken and Floy were there. The church who had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I lost everything but the dog. Well, of course, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. And I could think of only one sin from which to repent, pride. My life was filled with pride. Really, literally, Pride posters, Pride t-shirts, Pride coffee mugs. My house was the warehouse for the Pride march. I had a rainbow flag, it would freeze in the winter, it would thaw out in the summer. I even had a Pride doggy water bowl. So I took this as a sign um, and I repented of my pride. Uh, Seriously, though, the pride that really did lead me to believe that I could invent my own rules for faith and life and that they would be decent and good. Uh, The pride that led me to believe that I could invent my own rules for sexual autonomy, believing firmly that if we were consenting adults, nobody got hurt. The pride that said that I was entitled to live separately from God as long as I checked off boxes of good works The pride that led me to believe that self-worth was self-invented. That was what I repented of on my first round. I'm getting a PhD in repentance, so I can let you know what this round is, but that was the first round. Repentance, you see, is bittersweet business. It is not just some conversion exercise you do when you say a sinner's prayer. It is the posture of a Christian which means to me that it should be visible to others. It should be visible to our unbelieving neighbors and friends. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus's blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Indeed, repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it simply proves the obvious that God was right all along. So conversion was a train wreck, and I didn't want to lose everything that I had to gain Christ, but I did. Softly the voice of God sang a sanguine love song into the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank from the means of grace that God provides, Bible reading, prayer, psalm singing, fellowship of the saints, and then later church membership and the Lord's Supper. I took respite in private peace and then Christian community. Eventually, God placed me in a covenant family as a wife, a mother, a teacher, a writer, sometimes a speaker. God radically changes people from the heart. But there's the proof. The proof of conversion is a heart changed by Jesus. We do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up. We do not use our personal feelings as proof of gospel life. We do not look to ourselves for simply one clearer reason. We do not measure up. Jesus measures up for us. And that's the point. So what about homosexuality? Did did I ever get some special, um, you know, email from the Holy Spirit as to why it is a sin? Uh, Did I ever feel that unnaturalness that Romans 1 outlines? Or as a pastor friend recently put it to me, quote, Rosaria, when did the yuck factor about homosexual sex finally hit you upside the head? So I have to wonder, do people say those things to you? I mean, I just have to wonder. <laughs> you know, before I wrote that book out there, uh, I just never got those kinds of questions. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. Well, I, I, I hate to disappoint, but I've gotten no emails. Uh, it, it, the order, that's not how it happened. Let me tell you how it happened for me. The sinfulness of sin unfolded for me in the authority of the Bible alone and in the growing sweetness of my union with Christ and in the fledgling, painful, slow sanctification that this births. At a certain point in my life, I knew that I had to turn the wheel over to God. I was a little bit like an Alzheimer's patient who, in a flashing moment, of mental lucidity, signs over his rights to the only able-minded caregiver around. You see, that's what a believer does. A believer signs over his rights of interpretation to the God of the Bible. And I learned in this crucible that I was not to love or cherish anything that God calls sin, even though it felt very natural to me and it made a whole lot of sense. Psalm 66:18 18 puts it this way. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The verb to note is cherished. When we cherish sin, we are separated from a holy God. And when you defend your right to a particular sin, because it feels good and right and natural and normal, you are cherishing it. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 declares this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. When we cherish sin, we build a wall between us and our maker. We are deceived to believe that our sin is not our sin because it feels good. We call call God a liar when we do this. And we use our personal feelings as proof. All our personal feelings prove is this, that original sin is real. It proves this, that we are temperamentally born in a condition to sin. And it also says this, that the cross that some people have to bear in this world is heavier than others. Those are important things to think about in our church community. We're all wired as sinners, but we're not all wired the same way, to sin in the same way. So as 1 John 1:10 puts it, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Indeed, Homosexuality is a sin. But so too is homophobia. For me, the root of my lesbianism was pride. For others, the root may be lust, sexual addiction. Some sins are harder to battle than others. For God, when we call sin, sin, and repent of it, no matter what our personal feelings on the subject, and no matter how weak our feelings about our repentance. When we repent, we honor God. We honor God's authority. And indeed, by doing so, we live out question four of the shorter catechism. What is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Repentance itself is a fruit of Christian living. You know someone in your life who is daily repenting of a nagging, indwelling sin inherited at the moments of original sin. Why that person might just be a hero of the faith. For those in this room who struggle with gay or lesbian desires or with same-sex attraction, this is a hard and a heavy cross to bear, especially in today's shifting world, I I think that, you know, sometimes the church doesn't realize that the people who are most vulnerable right now to the culture wars, it's not the conservative Christian church, you know, I think conservative Christian church likes to always feel martyred by by culture wars, but the people who are really being battered around are those faithful, Bible-believing Christians who struggle every day with this and don't feel safe to talk about it. I know that if you are that person in this room right now and that you are in Christ Jesus will carry the heavier part of this burden but please to the Christians who do not struggle with gay or lesbian desires do not add unbearable weight to this burden by thinking that the sin of homosexuality is bigger or different than all the others or even that its solution is heterosexuality. The solution to all sin is Christ's atoning blood. In Christ, we are new creatures, redeemed men and women, who have been buried with Christ through baptism into death. We are no longer slaves to the sin that once defined us, although likely it still knows our names and addresses. So, what does a person like me do with her past? I guess it would have been different if I hadn't written that book. (laughs) But what do I do? Well, you know, I've not been lobotomized, in case you were wondering. (laughs) Um, I have not forgotten the flowing contours of my past, and details sometimes do intrude into my life fairly unpredictably. Homeschooling children, going over the order of operations in fifth grade math, needing communion bread, Well, I just take each ancient token to the cross for prayer, for more repentance, for thanksgiving that God is always right about matters of sin and grace, for thanksgiving that I don't have to make the call on this, that the Lord makes the call on these things. I think about a lot about this, about what it means to live within the story of the Bible to have, in some ways, the story of the Bible preceding my consciousness. That's actually one of my prayers, that the Bible would be so deeply rooted in me that it would precede my, the quickness with which I interpret my life. Um, So, I think about that, about what it means to live within the story of the Bible and how repentance truly is a fruit of my new life in Christ. And Paul's question in Romans 6.21 is one I ask myself often. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? So the layers of my life in Christ always unfold in a double directional way. I'm I'm a mom, I'm a pastor's wife, I'm a writer, I'm a speaker, and life's going forward at a really fast pace. But I'm also a sinner saved by grace, and... I, I've accumulated a lot of it and, you know, you just can't repent for all of it at once. So you go back, you go back and you go forward. And, and that double directionality gives you, I think, a little taste of eternity. It's never just one direction or the other. Oh, it would be terribly horrible sorrow. It would be, so, it would be nothing but, 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 but dreadful sorrow if all we ever lived in was the past. And it would be nothing but false, careless, shallow joy, not the bloody joy that we have in Christ, if all we ever did was, was think about the future. So it's always both and, for me and for you. We're really no different. What I do with my past and what you do with your past in Christ is the same. Because we know how much blood it would take of the Lord to heal our wounds, right one drop but he gave us everything so God did save me but he did not lobotomize me bigger than all of this though the past and the present I have not forgotten the blood that Jesus surrendered for this life where gospel faith paves the path of my yearning questions doubts and fears And where all aspects of my life, even the afflictions, trials, and tragedies, have meaning, purpose, and grace. Christ gives us joy as the strongholds of sin are torn down when we live in the grace of obedience. It's all a gift from him, but there is great joy in that. But in Christ, humility and suffering is redemptive, And this includes the suffering that occurs when Christ gives us the faith to choose him over ourselves. So I speak today about matters that happened over a decade ago. Um, I am primarily a pastor's wife and a mother. And what I primarily do is set tables (laughs) and wash dishes. Um, and set more tables and wash dishes. And, and my, my public speaking is not unlike my hospitality. If you all were coming to our home for dinner, we would be setting tables for you, and I would be praying over those table settings, praying that we would get to know each other, that we would bear one another's burdens in Christ, that we would be able to dialogue one to another, that we would ask hard questions and not be afraid of hurting one another. and so. Right now, I want you to just think of this right, right here as a table setting, that this talk was a table setting. And now I'm going to actually stop talking for a season and have a sip of my coffee. And this is an opportunity for you to ask some questions of me. And, I, you know, if you need to take a break because this has been really intense, I am one of those really intense people. I'm sorry. it, you, it just, it's how I am. Um, I, probably, if I weren't, if I were talking about knitting socks, I wouldn't be quite this intense. But I can even have, I even have an intensity about how how to do that. Um, so if you need to take a break, you know, please feel free to do that. But but this will be a wonderful time for you to ask your questions of me. And and please don't uh, don't filter. All right. If you ask a question that I am uncomfortable with, I will let you know. You don't you don't have to be in charge of how I might feel about your question. So, um, I turn this now over to you. And I, I'll try to hear, if you'd like to, oh, oh here's some microphones, okay, wonderful. I'm just curious uh, how your uh, homosexual friends reacted to your conversion. Right. And, uh, Right, 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 right. You know, I think sometimes we read, we quickly read through the epistles to have maybe a false understanding of of what happens when someone is converted out of a community that, um, that truly does hate Christ. And let me just say something that, you know, my biggest sin, and, and Ken Smith knew this, my biggest sin was not being a lesbian. You know, my biggest sin was being an atheist. So uh, my friends, with the exception of my transgendered friend, were, were unbelieving people. They were people who truly had the same feelings that I did, um, the same antip- antipathy and, and, and real rejection of Christ. So... Um, be, becoming a believer was probably much more offensive than leaving the lesbian community. Let me just say that, 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 that the gay and lesbian community, many, many things have made it a community that, that um, is, is more tolerant of movement in and out than I think Christians understand. So it wasn't that you know I you know, I left my girlfriend. I married a man, and I became this odious person because of that. Um, you know, I think there probably, if I had been an unbeliever who left my girlfriend and married a man, or left my girlfriend and lived with a man, I think there'd be, I think there would have been a lot of tolerance. But, but you see, I I embraced Christ, and I embraced the Jesus of the Bible, and that had a, um, that really did have like a like almost like a mangling effect on my community. I I became I became someone whose your secrets are no longer safe with me. I mean, you know, let's really think that that through. You know, I I was the keeper of your secrets, and now you are not safe because I am not safe. Um, You know, that's huge. Um, Not only, you know, it wasn't so much that I had. Uh, you know, a fluid notion of sexuality. Most people in the gay community are fairly open about sexual fluidity. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't hear that by watching the news today and some of the discussions about gay marriage. I understand that. But the inside talk is a little different. Um, But I became someone who embraced a normative sexuality because the Bible said so. Um, that's, That's horrifying. I mean, that is just a horrible idea in the life of an unbeliever. The gospel comes with much to offend. Um, and so I became an unsafe person. Now, what happened then, you know, because I became an unsafe person, so I was immediately, you know, I, I, my job got easier. You know, I was fired from every uh, gay and lesbian student group faculty advisor positions. Um, I, you know, even my dissertation students, you know, quickly scurried away and found other people. Um, I changed my field from, uh, I was at that point, I was tenured and queer theory was one of my fields. Uh, I was 19th century scholar and then queer theory. And I immediately changed my field to Christian hermeneutics and had to go before an ethics board to, to do that, you know? So that was, that was uncomfortable. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know what else to say, okay, I'm sorry, you know, I know you're supposed to just, just you know, joy at the thought of sharing the hope that was within you, but I would have rather had all my toenails pulled out slowly, you know, than do that. <laughs> that was uncomfortable. Um, uh, but then, you know, about six months in, into all this, um, you know, I'm still the same person in some ways. I'm still the director of undergraduate studies. I'm still teaching classes. My, my Christian hermeneutics classes are over-enrolled, um, you know, why? Maybe it was the carnival effect, I don't know, you know, but everything was was going along and then one of my graduate students, uh, a, a woman, a lesbian woman who had, was an international student, had tried to commit suicide by setting herself on fire. Now. I did not know that as her faculty advisor I was also in loco parentis in the eyes of the hospital. So I got the phone call, okay, I got the phone call. And it became very clear, this was a very critical situation, it became very clear that she was going to need the lesbian community there at the hospital. And so, you know, we had, you know, my friends from the lesbian community and my friends from the church and we were all in the hospital together. You know, we were all doing the things that people do in the hospital together. May I get you a cup of coffee? Is it your shift? Um, Hey, we're going to pray together. Would you like to join us? Um, it It was community building, you know. So one of the things that I certainly learned, and that is absolutely true, is that nobody will argue with mercy work. You know, I mean, people had all kinds of reasons to not trust me. But mercy work is mercy work. You know, the poor must be fed. The homeless must be sheltered, the illiterate must be taught to read, the orphans must be adopted, and the the ways that you can be shoulder to shoulder with people doing this mercy work was very powerful. The other thing that happened is when she was released from the hospital, the only place for her to go was Ken Smith's house, my pastor's house. And everybody agreed with that, because at that point we had shared our lives together in the hospital and people knew Ken and Floyd, they had a little understanding about how they operated, and everybody was happy about that. So, um, you know, I don't know if that answers your question. It was very complex. I I betrayed, and I alienated, and I hurt uh, the people who were the people I loved the most because of my faith, not so much, you know, sexual orientation issues. probably you know as things have gone on I'm sure you know I'm sure now I'm just I'm considered somebody with like three heads probably (laughs) right Um, but you know now we live in today's world right I mean I I I think it was it's it's really interesting I've always been on the losing side of the gay lesbian political issue right so when Doma you know Doma 96 2013, you know, I'm, you know, perpetually, I guess it's a spiritual gift to just be on the losing side, you know, embrace your gifts, right? Um, But one of the things that all of this does, I I hope, allow me to do is to not, um, you know, to not be derailed by ghost stories, if that makes any sense. I mean, one of the real challenges that Christians, that conservative Christians have is there, you know, we have to, you know, we must love our gay and lesbian neighbors and evangelize them. But we have been so, we've, we've been raised on ghost stories. We've been raised on ghost stories that these are the people to scapegoat. These are the people who have become the example of what not to be. And, you know, that's, you know, the, the gospel doesn't make scapegoats. The gospel makes converts. It's bloody. It's hard. Um, and, and I think the other thing that's, that's important right now, too, for the conservative church, you know, the, the, the gospel doesn't really say commit your life to Jesus and you will be happy, now does it? I mean, it just doesn't say that. You, know, you are to live in Christ because it gives him Glory. That your life and your sacrifice and your obedience and the way that you deal with afflictions happen to give God glory. And, you know, there's a false gospel that's being peddled. It's the gospel that says, God made you that way, he wants you to be happy and it's, it's, it's so important, you know so, I, you know, so I guess I'm just sort of running my mouth now, way, way too long, I'm over answering your question, but, I, you know, for me, I think it has been vital to be able to maintain, um, you know, f- uh, f- really loving friendships in, um, in the gay and lesbian community, but not back there in Syracuse as a kind of sentimental icon. But, you know, right here and now, I mean, everyone in this room has a gay or lesbian or transgendered neighbor or family member or friend or co-worker. And so we have to get the scapegoating. We have to remember that there's no scapegoating in the gospel. It's not a role anybody gets to play. You may walk away the rich young ruler, but there's no scapegoating, especially on, uh, you know, on some of these issues. I also think it gives us an opportunity to really understand original sin. I don't think people understand original sin. That original sin really means it. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, that original sin really means that you are born with a deep and primal, um, um, disordered sense of affection. Everybody here. So I think it's been, it's been very helpful to be able to say some of those things, but you know, it was hard back in Syracuse. It was hard. Yes.
2: Can you uh, tell me a little bit? Can you tell me a little bit about, about what was the academic community's reaction to this? Um, I find this extremely fascinating. Uh, my grandfather and my mother, all my aunts and uncles, all went to Syracuse, and you're the second person. Uh, this year that I've uh, come to know that have come to Christ at Syracuse University. And I find that absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, wow. could you tell a little bit about wow. the academic, I, I know the yeah. academic situation at Syracuse. Right, and
1: right, it's insane. You are not it. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. Well, and you know, I think that's the thing too, that you just, um, the, the Bible makes, its own claims to its own progeny, that is how it came to be, and its own system of intelligibility. So it is different from every other book in the world. Right there, you know, you just get kicked out of the game, right? You say that right there and you just get, you're, you're out of the club, right? You're out of the club. Um, you know, I, I, I will say this though. I, and this might be offensive, so, but, but I'm going to say this. I have found that academics... Um, okay, I'm, I'll, just, I'll just say the whole thing. I have found that academics and even unbelieving members of the press are kinder to me and will work with me on some of the things that I shared right here than some broad evangelical Christians. All right, so... I'm sorry to say that but that that is true. I um it was a year ago today. My my husband and I were reminiscing because I I was you know dreading I was really dreading this. I was speaking at the Family Research Council at an open to the public lecture on you know and and that it was one of those things, you know, the first 50 seats were the people in the room and everybody else was you know, you know, I don't know, video feed or something and the first 50 people who signed up were the secular press. You know, and and I will tell you that um, uh, you know, I talk about election, I talk about original sin, I talk about the gospel, and, you know, you didn't, they didn't slander me. I mean, if you, I mean, you know, they didn't. They were engaged. And I have found the same thing with, with academics. Now, I'll tell you that it would have been very different if I wasn't tenured. You see, I was tenured. And that gave me the academic freedom to make my case before the ethics board. And so, uh, you know, we've got opinions about tenure, and I, but I will tell you that it allowed me to keep my job. Because if I wasn't tenured, I would have been, you know, it, it would have been a real quick dismissal. Um, I, I will say this too, though. One of the things that you have to be l- careful of, you know, when you work at a university or when you have been allowed to be an idea maker, um, that's a... Um, I think the way someone once said it to me was this, you know, repent of your best deeds lest they become idols. Okay? Um, you know, James puts it this way, let not many of you be teachers. I know he's talking there within the church, but if I can generalize for a moment, it, um, uh, be careful. You know, be careful if, if you are um, quick with your speech, able to craft a good idea. You know, Satan still knows how to use even that, right? We are are truly to be slow to speak and and quick to hear. So, um, for me, it it was a very, a very, um, a very loving kindness when the Lord brought my husband Kent into my life, and it, it quite frankly became clear that if I was going to be a pastor's wife, in who knows where, right? <laughs> I was not going to be a tenured professor at Syracuse. I mean, you know, you know, we didn't know what else I was going to be, but we knew what I was not going to be. So, um, you know, also to both keep my job in a very uh, painfully political situation, but also to quit my job so that I could go and pursue. Um, a helping role to Kent's in the ministry was a very good thing. It was a very hard thing, right? I will just say it was a very hard thing. I was never the little girl that wanted children or wanted to be a, you know, I, I wanted to be a professor since I was five, I think, you know, because I just love telling other people what to think, you know. Um, um, so you can pray for me. Um, but, but, you know, every time that the Lord has just taken something from me, and it's happened a lot. I really have found the Romans 8:28 in it and I really have rested and yielded in the Psalm 119. It is good that I have been afflicted. There is truly nothing that I have lost that I have needed. And you know, it's true, you know, I was a tenured professor at a tier 1 research university and I wrote books. And I probably had four people in the world care about that. (laughs) Right? Maybe five. (laughs) So for a season, the Lord has given me a different forum. Um, I didn't think I'd be doing these kinds of things again, but here I am. So we follow the Lord. Right? We follow the Lord. But, you know, we... uh, I love George Marsden's work, you know, the soul of the American University. One of the things that we need to remember is that it is a creation mandate to steward well the earth. If Christians do not start stewarding ideas in the public realm, guess what? Non-Christians will. That's philosophy, all those scary subjects. If we do not steward them, someone else will. So what does it mean that all of our universities were founded on the on the, inerrant, on the idea of an inerrant scripture, the idea of an original sin, the idea of a gospel-driven life, that they were founded on those ideals, and now they've evaporated. You know, well, we can wring our hands and say, well, you know, the world's going to hell in the handbasket, you know, batten down the hatches, you know, ruby, let's... You know. <laughs> or, or we can steward well those ideas. I mean, I thought it was funny the letter I got from Ken Smith, you know, he, but I, he was stewarding biblical ideas. Part of why it disarmed me, you know, hate mail, I know what to do with hate mail. Fan mail, I know what to do with fan mail. And guess what? You do the same thing with both. You do the same thing with both. But when someone is stewarding a biblical idea, you just have to stop and ponder it. It's disarming, and Christians are called to be intellectually disarming in that way. In whatever realm you're in, I'm not suggesting that you all have to go off to the university, but whatever realm you're in, to not fear the stewarding, the good stewardship of ideas. So in some way, I think I'm still the same. (laughs) Other questions?
2: So I teach at a university. Define for me exactly the stewarding of ideas.
1: You want me to say more about that? Yes. Okay. Um, Well, Ken Smith did that because I wrote an article in the newspaper that condemned the Promise Keepers, and he wanted to dialogue with me on it. And so he did not, he wrote a letter to me. I still have it, of course. and he could have made a hundred points. I mean, he could have written a whole book about what was wrong with, in fact, let me tell you how he even read the article. One of the young elders in the church brought the article and put it on his desk and said, Ken, we have got to shut up this woman. She is trouble. She's the one that wrote the domestic partnership policy at Syracuse, okay, she is trouble. And Ken looked up to the young elder, and now picture this, Ken's in his 70s at that point, young elders in his, I don't know, 30s. And Ken looked up and said, oh, well, you know, maybe Floyd and I should have her over for dinner. All right. And you know that, you know, this young reformed elder just walks away thinking he is too old to be doing this. You know, we need need somebody who's really going to get in there. Um, So, you know, he wrote this. And one of the things that was really striking to me, and the reason I couldn't throw this letter away, even though I really wanted to, was he was writing about, you know, Jesus... Uh, entering into history. And, you know, I, I'm an old Marxist. I'm a materialist. People proceed from history. So, right there, he stewarded an idea, and it really made me stop and think. And it, and it, it did something that, that, that people don't often do to me. It shut me up for a moment. All right? And I was an unbeliever. I was a user. In fact, I was pondering this with a colleague of mine. I said, hey, read this article. You know, this colleague of mine was also writing on the religious right. He was an anthropologist, so he didn't have to read the Bible. You know, he could just, you know, go to the Promise Keepers rally and, you know, interview people. And he said, Rosaria, this is what you've been needing, a Bible scholar to help you read the Bible. Use this guy for your research. You know, like, oh, of course. You know, I should have had a V8. Sounds great. Um, you know, so, but but what Ken is he didn't, he didn't argue with me. He didn't. I mean, he really didn't share the gospel with me yet. I mean, he waited until he got to know me. Um, but the other thing that Ken did was he also decided that I was a neighbor and that God calls him to love his neighbors. And he just really needed to get to know me. And he was hoping that we could just do that. He really didn't have strings attached. So that would be an example. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I really enjoy doing this. I, I was teaching this last year a philosophy class for some of our, um, our homeschoolers, freshman high school homeschoolers. And, you know, I love that age group, and that's a great time. You know, it's a wonderful season to really learn continental philosophy and to, u- to learn it in the context of apologetics. You know, because often what happens is philosophy, it just sounds good. You know, and and maybe some of you feel this way right now with some of the arguments that we're hearing, especially the young people, about um, affirming gay and lesbian relationships. You know, who wants to be on a non-affirming side? Who wants to be the people who say no, no, no? You know, who, nobody, I don't want to be that either. You know, so the question is, how do we, well, first of all, you have to listen to the argument compassionately enough to see where the problems are. And then you have to be willing to move in close enough to get hurt. And then you've got to be willing to share alternative points of view. I, but I think it's important to do. I, you know, I, I give these lectures on college campuses, and you might imagine that 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 particular lecture at a secular campus might be, a, you know, a kind of testy thing. You you should know that that lecture on a Christian campus actually produces more protesters. However, um, and no no security because we're all Christians, right? <laughs> so, but what you know what what is important, and I, and I do. I mean, I've, at this point, the Lord has really blessed me to be able to always sit down and meet with my protesters. And what I have found is that when you meet with your protesters, you find that sometimes you cannot put the hand of the suffering into the hand of the Savior without getting very close to people. But you also find, at least I find, that there is a dearth of understanding about a couple of gospel points. The first is original sin. Anywhere I go, uh, on a college campus, secular or Christian, I find people who will tell me directly there is no such thing as original sin, it's original blessing. In fact, at my most recent college campus, notorious college campus events, I was consistently told that we are born in primordial divinity. Okay, now what we can do is we can throw our hands up in the air and we can say, oh, you know, students today, You know, can you believe? What are they teaching them at these evangelical colleges? Okay, but let's face it, we could also tap into our own heart and say, don't we feel that way sometimes too? (laughs) You know? I mean, I don't mean to be crude, but if your sin doesn't feel good, you're probably not doing it right. Sin has a way of feeling very good. And you grow in sanctification, and I know you, you learn to think differently about that, but come on, we're no different. And so it really, it, it, it takes, well, what it takes is trust in Christ, which is a gift from God, right? You can't just make yourself, you can't make yourself believe, you can't make yourself trust, you can't make yourself repent. Those are gifts from God. So it, it you know, how? how How do you, you know, how do you have these dialogues with people? Well, first you have to get to know them well enough that they break your heart. You see, if the people you're trying to evangelize are always people that you just want to keep at an arm's length away, it's, that's not, that's not the way it works. And I'll tell you, that's, I think that's part of why we are where we are. I think that instead of sharing the gospel, we shared a heavy-handed moralism. And um, guess what? It did not work. We are losing. In fact, we've lost. But the good news is Christians do better when you're in a losing posture. Really. We're nicer. We're humble. We pray more. We actually appeal to the means of grace instead of the means of, um, you know, uh, you know the worldly, our worldly gifts. So, uh, you know, for me, the the three things that pretty much come up everywhere I go, okay, I'm going to make it five. Here. The first is, the first is God's goodness. If God is good, why did he make me this way? If God is so good, why do I feel this way every day? Those are really important questions. The second is the authority of the word of God. How can this book that was written so long ago be authoritative now? What about new ideas? What about Freud? That's, the, that's really important. Um, you know, another thing that comes up, I think, constantly as just a blind spot is original sin. I, I, number four, I, I believe that we have had a, um, um, a mealy-mouthed, weak, person-centered and falsifying gospel message. We have told people that God wants you to be happy and prosper. We have not told people that God wants you to give him glory through your affliction and your suffering and your sacrifice and obedience. We have we have peddled a, this little light of mind gospel and we have failed to tell people that the real gospel message says that yes, there's a man named Jesus. He came. He lived. He suffered. He died. He rose again. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And you will have him for eternity. And right now in this earth, you will bear a cross or ten. Right? If we were honest with people, we would say that to them. And I think another thing that we just, you know, that I, you know, part of why I do what I do is that I believe God's elect people are everywhere. Yeah. I don't think that we have talked. I think even, even in reform circles, we're like, okay, don't say election out loud. You're not going to say election to the secular press, are you? Well, you know, it's funny. God sets apart a people for his own. Let's think about the beauty of that. Before the foundations of the world, you were set apart by a holy God before the foundations of the world how long has god loved you yes you are struggling right now yes you feel lonely and and you know what you are hungering for heaven because there is nothing here on this earth all of the things that people other people have have been denied to you but how long has god loved you you know june 2nd 1989 that's a short relationship did it really start the day you got on your knees and said the sinner's prayer I don't buy it. And the Bible doesn't confirm that. Before the foundations of the world is a loving embrace of God's capacious wisdom and knowledge and holiness and glory in your life. It's the longest relationship you will ever have. It's the longest relationship any of us will ever have. And if we make idols out of our family or out of our personal happiness or out of our personal prosperity, we are disrespecting that. So those are the five that pretty much anywhere I go, um, I I talk about. But I will say that I I find that that broad evangelicals get most snarky with me about those. (laughs) And for the most part, um, an unbelieving audience or even a committed secular audience or an academic audience um, is willing to, you know, hear you out as long as you're willing to listen back but steward well ideas. You know, the garden metaphor is such a good metaphor for other things, too. When we we think about repenting, you know, we've got to repent at the root, right? If we went and just sort of snipped the tops off of our dandelions, we said, okay, you know, I'm weeding my garden. You know, that, that just wouldn't work very well, would it? and yet often that's how we think of repentance. So, you know, the Lord has given us stories. They're not just stories, but they are stories, and they have the, they have the capacity to, to draw you in and make you think about how those metaphors get played out in your life. Well, do that. You know, there's a richness of the Bible that is not just in do's and don'ts. You know, there's a richness in the way that it shapes your ideas. Yes. We have a lot of um, youth going to college this year, and I think it's happening more and more that um, young ladies and young men are in youth group, and then they go to college, and they were Christians, yeah. um, and then they start um, the gay li- lifestyle. How do our youth and us as parents who see these kids doing, going this lifestyle. How do we approach that with our students, and how can we relate to the kids that say they're Christians, yet they
3: now are um, leaving the gay lifestyle?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, those are two questions. Do you mind if I separate them as two questions? Okay, so the first question was, you know, that, that sort of uncanny experience of you've got a child in your home, made a profession of faith, believer, Um, you know, has fruit. You see fruit in that person's life, and then somehow college is just, it's like it takes them out of the game. And, you know, I'll tell you, the blood is on my hands on this one, right? I I can tell you how this happens. Um, There are vampires like the person I used to be, uh, you know, waiting at the other end. And and I I know that just sounds really nasty and... and, and, uh, and possibly scapegoating, but maybe you can just take it as a confessional. You know I truly thought that people who believed in Jesus were really stupid. I thought it was a stupid thing to believe. and and you know I, I was on a war against stupid. So you know, you'd have to be debating with me on this. If you were in my classroom, in fact, I made it very clear, you know, in my women's studies class, all papers were to be written from a feminist perspective, in French class you speak French, in my class you speak feminism, you don't like it, go, you know, go now. But what you need to know is that what what people are, especially in the core, the core college classes, people are being trained to look at the world through points of view that are radically different from the Bible. And they're being trained by someone like Who I used to be, and you've gotten a little taste of me. I'm subdued. I'm tired. I'm 52 now. Can you picture me at 30? You know, without Christ, right? That would be scary. I don't know what else to say. You would be. You should be scared. I was. I should have been scared. Um, So, so you know, be be alert to what what kind of a war zone people are going into, and do not think that Christian college is immune from that. In fact, I want you to know that, in my opinion, uh, y- y- I, you know, I think you would be better off at a secular college located really close, real close proximity to a pastor who is really involved in that college, who will read those books with you, who is on campus as much as he possibly can be you worship at his church you are at his in his family room you know lord's day evening you are working all of this out because if not none of us could withstand that you know we are given the means of grace and we are given the time to, to, to access that. The means of grace are like a rushing river and those means of grace are Bible reading and prayer and fellowship of the saints, um, the sacraments, real fellowship in your church. Many, many people who are sent off to college are just literally you know, disconnected from all of that. Well, how else, why would their faith be sustained? I mean, how could you, how could it be? You know, I. the other thing that you have to be really mindful of doing as parents is to think about headship issues, you know. Um, at what point are you handing over your headship to someone else, and have you thought that one out? You know, it's more of a question than a, than a comment, because I think each family might do that differently. But, you know, ideally that person, your child, is off at a college that has a really good, already established college ministry, affiliated with a church that you, you know, you value, that you vetted the pastor, it's all good, and that guy is not just some talking head, he's got students in and out of his office and house, and, you know, we're reading Toni Morrison together, we're reading, you know, we're, we're reading, we're talking about this. Someone is equipping your son or daughter to go back and at least have a foothold, because ideas have a material force. And if you are not equipping your children to steward ideas, then that material force will swallow them up whole. And it's not the college's college's job is to do what I was doing. Okay, their mission is not your mission. So I think we just have to be really sober about that. And do not think that the Christian college is any different. I mean, there may be well-meaning Christians there, but sometimes it's even harder. It's even harder when, when a Christian professor whom you love and value says, did God really say, right? It's just harder. So, so be, you know, be mindful of that. Now, the second question, though, is what happens when someone comes home from college and says, you know, I'm a Christian and, and I'm a lesbian? Um, you know, first of all... I, I think it helps to just work all of this out. Um, can a person have a same-sex orientation and be a Christian? Well, yes, yes. I mean, you, yes, you know, you can. Well, I mean, the, the, the question isn't, you're not, your salvation is not dependent on, your, how your feelings measure up to where you ultimately need to be in, in, in glory, right? That's not, it's, 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 it's not in, that's not the world that we're in. Can you be unrepentingly gay or lesbian, active in your sexuality, and be a Christian? Well, if you are, you are sinning mightily, all right? I mean I think I think we we have to be willing to judge people by fruit, and at the same time, we have to be also willing to say that we are not the ultimate judge All right. so that might be a slightly different situation though than the, the the child who comes home and has really just been swept up recently by the um, the the fervor and the vitality and the 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 human, uh, the social justice excitement that's going on right now in gay and lesbian activism. And um, um, and what you will find, and uh, you know, I'm going to try not to fall off this, this stage here, so I'm just... What you will find, and I don't know if you've ever been involved in anything like that, but it is very heady to be involved in any kind of social justice work. It is very exciting to, to, to feel like you are finally doing something in the world that has some kind of receptor site on the other side. And, um, and it's very emotionally charged to hear people's personal stories of loneliness and isolation and agony and nobody caring and nobody listening and the church turning, them, turning their backs. and it is, it is an overwhelming experience for students Christian students on any college campus right now. Um, Soulforce is going through every college campus. They are very good at what they do. They are very good at what they do. The the It is personal narratives. And, you know, at some point, how can you, how in the world could any of us simply compare one personal narrative to another? Well, you know, it's just impossible. It's impossible. And so that's, and there's, so I would say that a person comes home from college and, and claims to be a Christian and claims to be an, an, a lesbian activist, you know, the, obviously that person is really confused, All right? Obviously you've got a person with a lot of confusion because our feelings and the, 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 the word that the Spirit puts upon our heart, right? The, the message that the Holy Spirit puts upon our heart must always be confirmed by the word of God, right? It can't be, you know, separate tracks. But what that confusion means, I don't know. Be gentle. You know, what, what I would say is if, if that is my daughter, then I, I have a new mission, all right? It's not to come and speak to you all. It's not to write another book. It's a, my mission is to shake the gates of heaven for my daughter. All right. and all other things now go secondarily, uh, and, and that might mean that your family is really disappointed because you might have, you know, some children who feel, you know, who have strong feelings on this, and you know, I think you you have to be willing to go after the lost sheep. Um, so, can you be openly, unrepentingly gay and Christian? No, not according to the Bible, you can't. You just can't. Um, Can a person be confused? Absolutely. Is your job to beat that person down with an opinion? It won't work. You know, I'm going to say, this is a harsh thing to say, but the Christian community will have to work very hard to love gay and lesbian people as well as the gay and lesbian community does. Okay, you're just going to have to work really hard. And you know, I I see. It's funny because I'm I'm watching the sort of the under the under thirty crowd is nodding, and the over thirty crowd's kind of giving me that. Can we trust her? (laughs) You know. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's just true. So you've got to be willing to really get in close, um, and um, and not not cut ties. Um, and I'll tell you, a really good book to read is not my book. And I, I love Sam Alberry's book. I'm, I'm so glad his book is out there. Another really good book is by Christopher and Angela Yuan called Out of a Far Country. And um, um, Angela, it's a, it's, a, it's a book written by a mother and a son. And, um, and Angela writes just beautifully about how she prayed for Christopher all of those years. And, um, and Christopher found his first Bible in a garbage can in federal prison and he's now a Bible professor at Moody. And I count him as one of my very best friends. Uh, and God does wonderful things with people. He does wonderful things. But, but what's really powerful about that book is you get the mother's prayers. You know, you get Angela's just the way that the Lord kept kind of clearing the field for her and how she was not going to be focused on the issue of homosexuality. You know, that's the other thing. If you have, if you're dealing with an unbelieving loved one, uh, even, you know, an, even an unbelieving loved one who believes that she or he is a believer, deal with the biggest problem. You know, the biggest problem is not homosexuality. The biggest problem is is lack of faith. And, you know, maybe it speaks to our biggest problems, too. You know, because it's a good question for us. Do we apply faith to our biggest struggles? Or do we apply gossip? Do we apply, you know, think about it, right? You know, what do we apply? Do we truly apply faith to our biggest afflictions? And if not, you are training, you are in training for your lost son or daughter. You must apply faith to your afflictions if you have any thought that you're going to be a good witness to someone else. And I think the other thing that's very hard for parents, it's hard for parents when all of a sudden they realize they don't really know their children and they thought they did. They're just so much easier when they're three and under. I know you're exhausted. You don't have REM sleep. You you haven't washed your hair in days, all that. But, you know, it's all just an endurance test at that age. You know, your job is to keep them alive, you know, which is not easy, right? Because they eat garbage off the floor and they fall down the stairs and and they don't bounce. But your job is to keep them alive. But, you know, a funny thing happens. Kids grow up and they truly become totally different than you thought. And one of the hardest things for mothers to realize is you don't really have the authority to speak to them in the ways you did when they were little. You don't, let me say that again to the parents in this room, you do not have the authority to speak to them in the ways Now, I'm not saying you don't have the authority to train them, to raise them, to nurture them, but there's a particular way that mothers train children that can lend themselves to a kind of repetitious belittling, or it can feel that way. And so you want to be careful that you are respecting the fact that this is an adult, and maybe an adult who is behaving in ways that you, that's paining you greatly. But make sure that the pain is the pain for Christ not the pain for how your Bible study feels about it, not the pain for the grandchildren you won't have or you don't think you're going to have. Or, you know, get out of the way, get out of the way. I know, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? But um, you know, I spend a good bit of my time talking to two groups of people: grieving mothers and struggling women. And I would rather talk to the struggling women because they're honest with me about what's going on. The grieving mothers are, are, are hard for me. Be careful about the tendency to manipulate your children by, I raised you better. I mean, please. If sin was simply a matter of knowing better, you would not need a savior. You would need a new app on your iPhone, and it would all be done right you need a savior because sin rips you and the rest of the world apart so i know those are really hard hard things and you know when when you're in a da- when you're in a dangerous situation like that you have to make sure that your own spiritual life is is 100 times sharper than it's ever been and you know that's what angela talks about in her book She talks about that. But, you know, stay focused on the real issues. What's the root issue? Homosexuality is not a root sin. It's just not. It's a a fruit of something else. So deal with the root, Um, and don't be afraid to ask people for real help. And if you are embarrassed, work that out, but not on your child. Okay, work that out. Work that out with your peers, with your Bible study, with your friends but don't work that out on your daughter or son. All right, other questions?
2: I wasn't gonna say anything until your last few comments um, (laughs) before this, but I'm gonna have to tell you a little story about what happened to me um, 36 years ago. Um, I was 24 years old and I was, a Southwest Minnesota farm boy who had gotten into the trucking business and I went from a local driver to a long-distance driver and in the first six months I was in 36 states in most cities in America very young and very naive and one time I had a unloading appointment about midnight in Minneapolis, Minnesota and I backed into the dock there and um, They told me it's gonna be five, six, probably seven hours before we get you unloaded. And I'd always been very adventurous, and Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm gonna go for a walk. Mm -hmm. And it was pitch blackout. There were hardly no street lights, and I walked for quite a ways. I had no clue where I was going, but I ended up in downtown Minneapolis, and I saw this street, and everything was lit up. Now this is one, two o'clock in the morning. And I thought, this is strange. I came from a little town, 9 o'clock at night. They roll up the carpets and everybody's in bed. Right. And uh, so I started walking down the street and I saw these establishments that were open. And so I reached out and I grabbed one of the doors and I stepped inside. And when I stepped inside, every eye in that bar turned and looked at me. And they were all men. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were sitting together with their arms around each other. I had never in my life heard the word homosexuality.
4: Hmm. I'd
2: never been told that men had sex with men. And when I stepped in there, I knew something was wrong. The hair in my arms stood up. Mm-hmm. And I backed out, and I made haste to get back to my truck. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the darkness as I went across that bridge and back to my truck, I was constantly looking behind me hmm. as if I had just experienced something. Mm-hmm. Something that I was very naive about. About three months later, I was in Seattle, Washington, and I stayed overnight at my uncle and aunt's house, and I borrowed his pickup truck, and I wanted to go see the Seattle waterfront. And I parked the truck, and I went for a walk in Seattle. And I went in another establishment, and an older man started following me. And all of a sudden, I realized that I was in a place that a young man should not be in who had been raised in the Christian church. I was Mm -hmm. not a Christian at the time. Mm -hmm. I had a young wife and two children. But I left that place, and I got on the truck, and I went back to my uncle's house. But I was repulsed by what had Mm -hmm. happened to me without having even been touched. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I became a Christian um, on January 1, 1980, Mm -hmm. I remember (laughs) having a compassion for for drugs. For people who had, were not as privileged as I was, who had not had a big loving family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I helped people when I was on the road. I would give somebody a tank of gas, mm-hmm. or I'd give them food to eat. But I can't get past the repulsion I feel towards somebody who is attracted to another man okay. when I have a beautiful wife, and I can't understand that attraction. Okay. And yet I know... That God loves that person just as so much as He loves me. Okay. But how do I get past right. that repulsion? You come up. You said, "How long did it take for somebody to, for the yuck factor?" Right. How do I get past right. the yuck factor? That's right. my question.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Now, and I think everyone here thanks you for the vulnerability behind that question. And you know, the 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 there are two things that that I want to say about that first of all um, part of why God gives us a normative sexuality and part of why God gives us the opportunity to repent of our sin is so that we don't eat each other alive right. that that you know you describe two very predatory situations well Anybody in a predatory situation would feel what you felt would feel, you know, threatened and anxious and um, and perhaps repulsed as well. Uh, you know, I mean, when you are when you are in a predatory situation, regardless of what your affections are, it is a uh, it is threatening and it is maddening, and it is wrong. And then as Christians, we realize that the only thing that makes us people who are not predatory is God's grace and the ability to repent of our sin. All right, that God's grace in giving us the Bible and giving us a normative way of dealing one with another, and then the opportunity to repent. I think probably repentance is the biggest thing. Uh, You know, anytime I hear this issue of consenting adults, no, 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 no. Not without Christ. There is just no such thing. So, you know, I don't think that it is sinful to be repulsed by having been the object of a predatory sexuality. I think that I would agree with you. I think what we want to be be careful of or just be mindful of and this is part of the the challenge right now that we have as Christians you know the the gay community wants us to you know wants to say look you know we're just like everybody else except for the genders are different everything else is the same and and you know there's just a flimsiness to that all right but there's also a reality that in common grace not every gay person is predatory Okay, God gives common grace. Common grace allows our gay neighbors to be really good citizens, uh, you know, sometimes, really good parents, um, um, you know, really good baseball players, whatever. That's common grace, and we benefit from it, too. So I don't think we need to be, um, you know, I don't think we need to be, um, you know, horrified by that. But I think, you know, you've had two situations that were dangerous and predatory, and that you walked away from those two situations feeling repulsed by what you saw and by what you heard and by what almost happened to you, makes perfect sense to me. So maybe there's someone else here who could offer some more counsel beyond that. Now, I don't know if you're doing this, but if you feel like this is, you're, you're, you're generalizing that now into such a way that you feel like you could never, um, you know, you could not witness, or you could not become friends with your gay and lesbian neighbors. You know, I, I, I would say that um, to, when we're honest with each other, we would all say that we have had these experiences with either people or groups of people that have been threatening to us. Right? Uh, there's just there's no way around that. Uh, can you pray for your gay and lesbian neighbors? Start there you know what 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 means of grace has God given you that you can um, that you can bless your gay and lesbian neighbors with? you know start there start there. Um, I think that in a in a church community as we are elbows and eyes and as we're a diverse group, can you support someone in your church community who is, um, you know, involved in some kind of helpful ministry? And, you know, I would say, too, I'm, I'm uncomfortable in general. You know, whenever a church will call me or say, you know, can you help me develop a ministry to gay and lesbian people? You know, I just say no. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to say. You know, we can develop a ministry to the lost. You know, we can develop a ministry to, um, you know, to, um, you know, we can do a literacy ministry. We can, we can certainly develop a ministry where we really plug a, a need-based hole. But um, I'm uncomfortable with creating a ghetto in a church when we are not supposed to be a ghetto you know in spite of what the fellowship meal says a through m could bring something other than a covered dish you know this lord's day you know just go be radical you know bring a watermelon you know so <laughs> so i you know I, I so on the one hand i would i thank you for your vulnerability i am sorry that those things happened to you i would probably feel the exact same way and if if this has made it so that you don't feel like you can be on the front line of this ministry god will use you on the sidelines God will use you. You you know what? We don't all need to be on the front line of everything. How could we possibly? How could, you know, and I think part of of why, we haven't talked about women's issues yet, but I think part of why it has been really hard for young women to understand a complementarian approach to the Bible is that the role of a helper has been totally and completely obliterated uh, 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 you know as anything worth doing so if you cannot be a frontline person but you can be a helper who knows how many people you are benefiting more greatly by doing that we need more people on the sidelines praying
3: I wanted to ask you a question about young children yeah I have, uh, nine seven and five okay and so I just wanted your thoughts and advice about just a day-to-day conversation because when I was a child you never saw anything on television or anything about you know homosexuality now it's not even a matter of making sure they're not watching a certain channel I mean we could be watching the nightly news right and they're showing video of you know gay marriage and you know right and so I I want to have the approach of what you're saying which is what and what I've told my nine-year-old which is You know we don't agree with this God doesn't agree with this but we love these people anyway you know we you should always be kind to people even if this is not something a lifestyle we agree with
1: right um and so
3: I was just wondering what you know and then um what you told your own children about your life right 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 um yeah well it, it is it is sort of funny when
1: you're me you know, you kind of have to approach these things differently, don't you? <laughs> you know, like, there, there was just never a day that we sat down and said, okay, you know, mom used to be a lesbian and an atheist, and you were adopted. Okay. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> don't ask me any more questions, you know. Done. Check. We're done. You know, we just, that's not, um, so my poor kids, right? I mean, they just, you know, what do you say? I, I tend, I, I well, When we talk about homosexuality, we talk about it with little people in terms of affinity and affection. Um, So, um, you know, until you've talked about sexuality, they need to have a file folder to put this in. So, you know, we talk about it in terms of affinity and affection until a certain point when we talk about it in terms of sexuality. Now, I tend not to use words like agree with or don't agree with because my kids talk back really well they were born talking back they that was their first ability to speak a sentence was talking back so so nobody agrees with me so i'll tell you that i will be in the losing side if i ever said you know we if i say we don't agree with this i'll have a whole house full of little people under the 4 foot tall you know who all of a sudden are the best gay activists you know in the neighborhood so you know what 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 i you know, what What I do talk about, though, is that sin is deceptive, and that sin, it's not that some people are sinners, right? Pastor Dave introduced me as a sinner saved by grace. Everybody is a sinner, and it's not about what we agree with or what we don't agree with, because again, aha, they are going to become really good gay activists if I say that. I know that. I love them. I know them, um, but it's not so much about agreement as it is awareness that in Christ we see ourselves differently Christ the gospel is a special mirror and it allows us to see ourselves differently and we pray for that for our neighbors we pray for that for ourselves and our ability to sin comes from the fall you know so it isn't that some people are weaker than others or some people i don't know if you're little ones but for years you know is that person nice is that person nice you know and even you know color for my children all of my children are biracial color was never about skin it was always about shirts you know, the blue boy, the green boy, the, I mean, nobody knows, you know, you'd think, you'd think we'd figure out race, you know, but, you know, it it took like the 10-year-old time (laughs) to really, to really get there. So, so, you know, you want to work with what they are seeing. Um, I will say, you know, we don't have TV, Um, it actually was stolen, we had, we, we were robbed, and the, I mean, and even my kids will tell you, mom is so happy they took the TV. Um, but I, you know, I do, I do. Even before we didn't have TV, we were too cheap to have cables. We couldn't watch the Olympics, so we couldn't watch the commercials. But all of my homeschool mom friends, how do you deal with the, you know, the commercials on the Olympics? I don't know. I'm not watching it. But it sounded, you know, it sounded really hard. And I will say too, the transgender issue will even be, maybe more challenging because. Um, you know, I think back to the kind of repulsive, the, 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 the reaction factor. I think children, um, they tend to have very strong gender r- rules and I think to see someone in a transition like that is, will be very threatening and I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to be seeing more, not just the finished, you know, a finished transsexual, but I think we're going to be seeing more transitional issues. And I think, I think our children are going to have to be equipped to know how to respond, how to understand. So I, I think that if you think you're sheltering them, you're not. And so to be willing to listen to their questions and, and, and treat them biblically, but ultimately, you know, sin and grace are never private. You know, they're just never private. We might think they're private, but sin and grace are never private. And um, original sin has rendered it so that it's a pretty equal playing field. And the gospel is a mirror that allows us to see ourselves in a more accurate way. Now, we're not going to see ourselves perfectly until glory, right? We're going to look through that glass darkly. But that's, those are some of the ways that we talk. Um, And and I think, too, to be, you know, to be mindful that it's not that you can't learn good things from your gay and lesbian neighbors. I don't know, you can learn, uh, uh, you know, I have neighbors who are exceptional woodworkers. I don't know anything about woodworking, but you know it's it's a it's a wonderful craft. it's a wonderful skill. people you know people contribute. Uh, I mean you know I, I have a neighbor. we first moved into our, our house and my um, my son was riding his bike without a helmet, and my my lesbian neighbor took away his bike for a week. Now, let me tell you something. we became best friends at that moment. okay? I mean, finally. Finally, you know, isn't it wonderful when you're a parent and you actually realize that your neighbors are grown-ups? <laughs> so, you know, to, to value and appreciate people doesn't necessarily mean that you throw everything open and you leave all counsel. You know, you are always your household, your family, your church on the word of God. You know, we are to be like the Bereans and to the degree that we can teach our little people to do that, we do that too. But, you know, let's be totally upfront about this. The sin that is going to rip you apart is your sin, not somebody else's. So to be much more mindful of the way that your sin is the most dangerous sin around, not somebody else's. Other questions? Yes. I'll walk over here.
0: Um, Ken's pursuit of you was is inspiring, I guess. Um, Smith, uh, you know the way he went about it, uh, and um, not—it's uh, freeing to hear about uh, breaking some Christian rules and yeah. in relating to somebody. And um, you also mentioned that he, that his prayers were kind of opening for you, and um, when you yeah. were going to a pastor's house. You had to be expecting. Something, but our neighbors may not be expecting something coming into our homes, and so yeah. I'm I'm wondering about what you remember about that, and you know, did he pray at the fir- the first time y'all got together before yeah, the meal or yeah, not? Yeah,
1: well, you know, Ken is, and he's still alive. In fact, he called me today. I I was busy. I couldn't take the call, but he he's he's great. He just spoke at the he spoke on evangelism at the OPC General Assembly. Um, you know, so he's he is an active, uh, I mean, he's retired, but he, there's, he doesn't know what retired means. When I, I saw him last September, and he shared with me this tract that he put together, and I said, oh, you know, how many have you given out? And he said, and he has a rule, he will never hand someone a tract unless he has sat on your porch, had a cup of tea with you, knows you well, you have you know each other's names, 800. All right, you know, so... You know, some people are just, they, they just, right, they just kind of make us look really lazy. You know? <laughs> There's no way around it. Um, <clears throat> I will tell you that Ken Smith's primary um, theological focus is union with Christ. And if you spend any time in his house, you will hear about union with Christ. He will tutor you in union with Christ. And his house... Um, I don't know, it's like, a, it's like a home for wayward dogs or something. You know, you're there, but then so-and-so is walking through, and you never know who's going to be at the table. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the Bible's always open, and then there's the dictionary, and, and anything goes. Um, you know, he, he made it very clear to me that the Bible was not some museum piece. You know, you leaned hard and heavy on it. You ask pointed, harsh, hard questions. Um, you're not squeamish with God. God wasn't squeamish with his son. You don't, you know, we don't mess around. So he just, he, he um, establishes a, um, <clears throat> a candid transparency. Um, and he introduces um, what might seem to be theological ideas. He introduces them <clears throat> in a very pragmatic, very lived way. So for Ken... Union with Christ means that um, I'm your neighbor and, you know, it's Syracuse, New York. People aren't moving very quickly. You know, it's, you're there. People have been there from the same zip code for, you know, centuries. Um, and for as long as we're neighbors, I am going to make sure that my union with Christ is something that is also a blessing and a benefit to you. And, and, you know, he made it very clear to me from the very beginning, I can accept you right where you are. I don't have to approve, do I? Yeah. I, and, I and I had a whole world of approving people. I didn't need one, I didn't need more fan mail. Um, so he was, he was just very honest and, and so am I. Um, <clears throat> but, but I think, I, I left feeling that for as long as we were neighbors, we were going to be friends. Now, obviously, we are deeper friends because we are in Christ. <clears throat> but, but I didn't get the sense that there were any strings attached. So, you know, in some ways, you know, Ken Smith was an old, reformed pastor. But because union with Christ was more important to him than what his young elders thought or what, you know, these other things, he, he felt like he had a whole lot of time with me. Um, he also said, because I had said to him at one point, you know, why didn't you just, like, say, you know, come on, Rosaria, let's get to the point, you know, why did you let me go on for two years, and, you know, weren't you afraid I was going to die in a car accident, and you would never share the gospel, and, you know, like, you know, all those kinds of things, and, and he said, well, well. first of all, you were reading the Bible more than most of the people in my church, so I wasn't really <laughs> concerned that you weren't, you know, reading, the, you know, you were already kind of checking that one off. But, um, but, but he said, you know, the, the Holy Spirit did not give me liberty to really push at you. And, you know, probably one of my strangest encounters, and I, I remember, I think I shared this at Southeastern Baptist Seminary. It didn't quite go over as well as it might here. Let's see. Um, he, um, he. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd come with a real spiritual quandary, and I said, Ken, I just don't know what to do. And, and he did not say, well, you know, Rosaria, just you know, you know, ditch the girlfriend, commit your life to Christ, you know, join the church, you know, <laughs> come on. He looked at me. I remember this so perplexing. This man was is always so perplexing. He looked at me and he said, Rosaria, were you baptized? Well, I said, well, of course I was baptized. I went through four Catholic sacraments. I was, you know, a month old. I don't remember it. What does that have to do with anything? He said, oh, uh uh-huh. Well, so you've never really thought about your baptism. I said, what is there to think about? He said, you need to go home and think about your baptism. I said, well, where do I start? <laughs> you know? And he gave me some things. He said, you know, in our catechism, we talk about improving upon your baptism. How do you improve what are you t-? So it was really perplexing to me. I mean, I almost felt like I was chopped liver sometimes, you know. Like, we're not, I'm not gonna tell you what to do. You know, the Holy Spirit is going to guide and direct. And but he did say that he was kind of wait baiting, you know, he was he was waiting me out because he wasn't really sure if I had really thought about my baptism and thought about what it meant, um, you know, what it meant to be a covenant breaker, you know, in some ways, really. Because to be a covenant breaker, it's, it means you're in the covenant, right? You know, and, and he wasn't sure. I mean, he was just really curious to know what I would think of my baptism. And so I, I went home, and, and, you know, it was a crazy thought, you know, because I how in the world was i baptized you know so i called my mom and i you know my parents were unbelieving excommunicated catholics that right there is absurd (laughs) that i was baptized (laughs) that i went to catholic school for almost 18 years and yes i do know that there are some theological issues but i still you know did a lot of bible memory i still memorized a number of creeds and councils and you know it It did make me think about the fact that God was directing my steps all the way. And what it really forced me to do, because I think Ken realized, you know, I love to debate. I would love to have just debated with Ken, you know, all night long. He is not a debate, he would not even go there. And I think what he realized was by asking me to reflect upon my baptism, that was going to make me really get alone with the fact of God's providence in my life. And even to think about, at one point, um, I remember being very active in the Catholic Church, and being, I loved the nuns, you know, I just loved the nuns. I mean, they taught me to diagram sentences, Why, you know, how would you not love the nuns? Um, And I... uh, I felt very betrayed at one point because there was a priest that was, I was the, very close to him. He was an excellent, you know, he was really connected to the youth group. And, and it turns out that he had, um, he had molested almost everyone in our youth group but me. I mean, it was 35. And I was bitter about that for years until that time when I was reflecting on my baptism and I realized, well, hey, there's two ways to look about it. Father Paul abused everybody but me. Why? You know, why? Why did God protect me, preserve me? Why? You know, there is a holy God that has been orchestrating all of this. And so now the question wasn't what do I do with Ken Smith, or what do I do with Ken Smith's theology, or what do I do with the Bible, or what do I do with my girlfriend, or what do I do with my research. The question was, "What do I do with God?" And that created a little space, teeny tiny little space, for really an emotional response that that I had when, um, you know, when I believe I was converted. Because at that point, you know, there were people who asked me, "Do you still feel like a lesbian?" Well, of course, I still felt like a lesbian, but the The real thing, you know, for me, when I was converted, you know, I I didn't want a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a dog or a house or a job. I wanted Jesus. And it was a book and parallel, you know, recollection of what it was like when Ken Smith said, go think about your baptism. Because thinking about my baptism made me think about the covenant. And thinking about the covenant made me think about God's providence. Thinking about God's providence made me realize that, you know, I was a covenant breaker from the beginning, raised by covenant breakers. No reason in the world, apart from God's grace, that I would have been given those protections and those gifts. And so, I, you know, again, I don't know that you could write an evangelism manual on that. But um, Ken Smith values union with Christ. And, you know, and I think it's a good thing to think about, you know, as we leave this place, you know, what do we value? You know, what do we treasure? You know, what do we value? What do we treasure? And, and do our unbelieving friends, is it palpable in some ways, even if they don't have the vocabulary? You know, is it palpable in some significant way? But I'll tell you what Ken was not. Well, I should say it this way. Ken was not one of those seeker-friendly pastors, except for in this way. The only seeker is God. God is a seeking God. And Ken believed that God was seeking after me. And so he wanted to facilitate that and get out of the way at the same time. But I'm sure that there are a lot of people over the years, you know, because it was years, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who just thought it was ridiculous that he was wasting all that time on this one person. You know, he could have packed in the thousands and, you know, and it was pricey time. It was real time. So, but he would say that it comes from really valuing union with Christ over over all else and you know and I've been thinking about that a lot lately you know as as we've been watching the debates with the gospel coalition and law and grace and where do we stand on some of these things and you know where does sanctification come from well you know a lot of sanctification comes from union with Christ right I mean you know there's 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 something quite capacious about what Ken Smith really focused on in life you know the other big focus for him was hospitality and, and Kent and I have tried very much to do that as well, that, that hospitality for, for Ken and hospitality for the Butterfields is really not something that we, you know, because we do it all the time, we don't have to plan for it, if that makes any sense. You know, it, we don't worry about it because we do it all the time. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the house is clean and sometimes it is not. <laughs> you know, And if the dog needs to be walked, why? Hopefully there's someone in the house who will go do that for me so I can get dinner on the table. So, and it was nice to see that about Ken too, that he wasn't worried about making an impression. You know, it, it wasn't like that. And there's a, um, you know, in a world where people are so functional, you know, and sometimes Christians struggle with this too, so focused on being functional, we just don't have time for each other. Oh, and that's, that's a sin. That's a sin, and it's a sin that we will regret, and maybe we are regretting it. Other questions? Yes. One more. I'm getting the one more question. The, ner- the folks in nursery are ready to be done. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of pressure on the last question.
4: Thank you so much for your presentation, and I definitely really enjoyed it. It was very insightful. One thing um, that I wanted to ask, so kind of, and you know, I guess, kind of, in conclusion of the evening. So, as a church, as mm-hmm. a church body, I know that for me, growing up, small town church in another community, great church, homosexuality like came up very, very little. Right. And when it did, it was kind of a impassing. Don't do that. Right. So nowadays, in the churches. We have young people, young men, young women sitting in the pews that are dealing with these things. Right. For and whatever we always reason. have. <laughs> right. For whatever reason, right. How does the church respond to that? What do we do to be a place where the young men and women sitting in our congregations can feel... Because, of course, the world is giving us all a very clear message about homosexuality. Right. A That's very right. clear one. And what, what the world is telling those kids what we should be doing with it. Right. So how does the church... Make sure that they know they can come to the church.
1: Yeah, with those yeah, 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 yeah. You know, first of all, I, I love that question, and and I'm so glad. I'm I, that was a great last question. I I, I want to say that the worst thing about same-sex attraction is not the sex part. It's not the sexuality part. It's the fear of growing old alone. Okay, it's the fear that. Everybody else is going on in their developmental stages, and you're just stuck. And, you know, if you didn't have a mom and dad in the church, you know, you're a third wheel. Nobody really, you're not integrated, and nobody loves you, and if you weren't there, nobody would notice. And, and I'm telling you that from my experience, but I'm also telling you that from the experience of just countless people that I talk to the worst part about same-sex attraction is not the sexuality. Not if you're a Christian. I mean, I think, you know, there there are sexual addictions and other problems, but if you are a Christian and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, the worst part is the fear of being lonely forever. And, you know, you can't deal with that in a pulpit ministry alone. Okay? It is so important that our pastors have... A vital pulpit ministry where they are expositorily teaching and opening the Bible up for us so that we can apply it but we don't apply it sitting in the pews we apply it when we leave and if all of the hospitality of the church is by invitation only it's functional it's programmatic not just people who struggle with same-sex attraction, other singles, other, you know, others as well. There are a lot of people in our churches who are just dying of loneliness. They're dying. You don't even know it. You know because, the, because at some point, they're just going to disappear. And we'll say, oh, they must have moved on. One of the ways that a church can prevent this is to make sure that every home is given to hospitality in one way or another. Now I understand when you've got small kids, it's a different deal. We adopted two teenagers out of foster care. So guess what? There were seasons when it would have not been kind to our Christian community to invite you. You would have learned new vocabulary words and that would not be good. So I do understand, I get it. There are seasons of ebb and flow on this. But for the most part, you know, 1 Corinthians 10:13 No temptation has overtaken you except which is common for man and God will give you a way of escape Christian your home is the way of escape and if your door is locked or you're embarrassed because there's cat hair on the couch all right you may be causing someone to stumble you know what you need to know is that the hardest day to be single is the Lord's day it is a dreadfully lonely day there could be books just written on all the sins that, that vital, vibrant Christians fall into on the Lord's Day because it is so lonely. It is so miserably lonely if you do not have a built-in community. But isn't the church a built-in community? I mean, what does church membership mean? You know, I mean, I, I know what it means. I'm a, I mean, I do. I, but, but, I mean, what are some of its... What are some of the ways that it, 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 it informs the contours of our life? Um, you know, do we have people in our church that just plain need us to be around? You know, I, we de- I mean, I depend upon the singles in our church. I am so grateful that they want to be with us and, and tie into our family. And, uh, you know, and we don't have... Um, I mean, it helps that Kent is, is a pastor. He's home all day. I homeschool the kids. Believe me, by six o'clock, we are so happy if somebody who is not part of our family walks through that door. <laughs> you know, anybody, you know, we're ready to like, you know, adopt the UPS man just so that, you know. So it is, it is you know, for us, it is a really vital ministry to, to, to know that, you know, truly the door is open and, um, and truly we need you. Um, so I would say stop being so functional. The church needs to stop being so functional in its hospitality notions. And it needs to go back to the book of Acts. And it needs to really think about, you know, what, what was hospitality like under persecution? You know, that, that, maybe that doesn't sound like a fun Martha Stewart party theme idea, but I do think persecution's coming, and I think it might be a good idea to prepare for that. Um, but, you know, I've been just really taken by, you know, Bonhoeffer, um, Cory Ten Boom, you know, reading people who had these amazing hospitality ministries in persecution, you know, well, why is that? Well, because the means of grace were so necessary and, and community was so necessary. But we need to have a vital hospitality ministry where pretty much after the worship and after Sunday school, everybody's got someplace to go. Everybody, And not just to go to pass time, but to go and serve, you know. Okay, here we're gonna. This group's gonna go to the nursing room, nursing home. This group's gonna go on a hike, you know. And everybody's gonna gather back at six o'clock for dinner, and we're going to eat and sing psalms and read the Bible and and share how the Lord has uh, walked beside us in this day. And it is amazing what one day free of loneliness, one day out of seven, when you know, the singles in your church, the widows in your church, the college students in your church know that it's the one day. I'm not going to be, I'm going to be fighting other battles. It's the one day. I'm not going to fight this battle. Um, Go meet your neighbors. We were just talking to one of our neighbors who was a recent, you know, very recent widower and, and, and asked him how he was doing and and he said, you know, Sundays are the worst days. And you know, I'm so glad that, you know, we were, you know, we're already built hey, we're set up for that one. <laughs> you know, we're not set up for a lot of things. Don't ask me for money. You know, but but we're set up for that one because we gather. You know, and if you're the first one home after worship, um, you know, set the table for me or you know. Um, so I think to just encourage people to have um, a hospitality ministry that isn't so functional, and um, and understands that probably one of the greatest gifts that a Christian can give another person is accompanied suffering. It's it's one of the greatest gifts. It's um, um, it, it's a it's it's a it's a hugely important thread in the Bible. It's a thread in the life of Jesus. Accompanied suffering. Am I good company for the suffering? Do I know how to stand with the disempowered? Am I so squeamish? I don't want to ask you. Look, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're a college student, you're, you know, if you are disconnected, you need to be with people. Now, I don't mean this in some kind of a crazy, extroverted way. Uh, you know, you can just come over and, re- and go read in the corner with one of the kids. You can just come over and walk the dog. You don't have to be, it doesn't have to be kind of a manic society. It's just community. And, you know, a lot happens when you do that. I was reading um, The Hiding Place with with my children, and we were really intrigued at the fact that the ten booms You know before they had a purpose they had a practice you know their practice because casper was the watchmaker was you know every day at 8 a.m they would have breakfast and they would open the doors to anyone else who would like to join them and they would read a chapter from the new testament and at night at six o'clock they would have dinner and there was there would always be people in the shop and they would join them and they would read a chapter from the old testament and they did that consistently and before they knew how God would use that, they already had a community. They already knew how to be vitally involved in one another. The Bible was already um, a thread, uh, a tapestry of grace throughout their lives. So, you know, we have to start rehearsing now for for, 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 for later. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We really don't. Um, but But community and building community and in being intentional about how you build community in your home is, I think, a vital link to that. And that's where it comes up. That's where it comes up. You're walking the dog and somebody says, okay, look, I haven't mentioned this before. You know, And you know what? I, I praise God for modesty. May I tell you that part of why I think, part of why people, Christians, feel like they need to... Um, maybe expose more than they ought is because nobody's listening, you know. So I don't think, maybe you would disagree, but I don't think that w- when I share with you a deep, you know, a, a, just a deep thing in my life, I don't feel like I need to tell the whole world, but I need to tell you, you're my friend, I need you to pray for me, I need you to, you know, I need to know that I can text you in the middle of the day and say, hey, just pray, or, you know, or something like that, um, And I think, you know, I think that discretion and modesty, you know, maybe this is part of the issue, maybe for some of the older Christians, it's so uncomfortable to think about how to interface with homosexuality, because likely people are going to then say things that are going to make me embarrassed or uncomfortable, or I won't know how to explain to my children, and um, you know, and without meaning to, maybe we've created a situation where people, good Christians, are lacking discretion and modesty because they just don't have one ear. You know, one ear, one friend, one prayer partner, you know, one walk on the Lord's Day with a knowledge that these are my people. I, I know and I am known. Um, I will not grow old alone because I am part of the body of Christ. And, and, and Christ loves his bride. And I am a beloved son and a beloved daughter of the king. I will never be alone. I'm a member of this church. I will never be alone. I wonder sometimes what our unsaved neighbors think of church membership. I mean, I suspect they think that means we can vote on what kind of you know, paper towels you know, we use in the kitchen that year. And, and sadly, maybe that's what we think of it too. So what would happen if church membership became so intimately entwined with community that it was inseparable? You know, What would happen if the Christian church became the place where the lonely knew that they could rest their head? Well, a lot would happen. You know, and, and, and mostly the Lord would be honored, right? Because whatsoever you do to the least of these, you do unto me.